So here we are in the Sermon on the Mount and what we are calling the Gospel of the Kingdom. It's this sermon that Jesus has, we believe, Jesus was preaching as his itinerary sermon. He's gone around from city to city, region to region, and he's pretty much repeating this. And so the disciples that are there recording these words certainly have good uh, reason to put these things down so that we can then be encouraged and challenged by Jesus' words. Again, Jesus has come and he's done a few things for us. We're still very early on in the sermon, even though we're 33 now verses in. What he's done so far, it has redefined what the blessed life looks like. You guys remember the Beatitudes, that he redefines what we're looking for as the blessed life, that it's meek, that it could be mourning, and it's all those sorts of things that he unpacks with the Beatitudes as the blessed life. Nonetheless, it is the place where we flourish in God's kingdom by God's ultimate design. That's what the blessed life looks like, and so it's going to mean reorienting what we think blessing looks like. He then moved on to tell us about our identity, that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that he has put that in us to be those things in this place. And we need that message probably now, a good reminder of that now, maybe more than ever. And then he laid down the gauntlet where he said, you must have a righteousness that surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees. And he's been going now, this is the fourth of six sayings where he's saying, yeah, yeah, the Pharisees define righteousness this way, but I say to you, it's really more this way. So he's, he's run down some things where the Pharisees have really defined their righteousness, such as really easy things like, I'm not a murderer. And Jesus says, but if you've been angry, you surely are. Well, I have not committed adultery, but if you've lusted, then you surely have. Well, I don't, when I divorce my wives, by the way, I give them a certificate. Okay, great. Well, it's better probably not to divorce altogether. And today he hits us with, well, what about vows? What about oaths? What are we doing with our words? Then it's no surprise uh, to the Lord and his sovereignty, because I can guarantee you we didn't plan this, to have um, how do we use promises? How do we use oaths and vows, particularly in public or private life, right on the back end of our election cycle? We think this is the back end of the election cycle. It might not be. We don't really know. Um, but like right when the election and all that starts to really culminate is now this sermon on what do we do with our words? Um, like, I don't know where you've been this week, but I would imagine you've, you've had some anxiety. You've had some uh, like, I don't know, just some uncertainty in your soul this week as a result of the political process in our land. But God knows what we're up to. And some of us have this political hangover. We've put our hope in something and it didn't come to pass. Or we put our hope in something and it did come to pass. And now there might be something there that we're hoping in that God never intended as well. One way or the other, we probably have to reorient our minds around what it is that's truthful. What it is that we can rely on. Because here's what we know. Uh, in a passage about um, oaths and letting your yes be yes and your no be no, we've all been reminded lately, uh, particularly around politics, that that's maybe not the most trustworthy place to put our hope. Right? And so we know this. Like There are a few professions in the world that you're probably not sitting there going, oh, I trust them. Definitely trust them. Why is it that we 
don't trust politicians. I mean, generally speaking, some of you might be politicians in here, and if so, I apologize. But nonetheless, generally speaking, if it's news to you that the general public doesn't trust a politician, why is that? Why is it that politicians are really not to be trusted? Because they say one thing and don't usually do the thing. They promise you certain things and then usually don't follow through with that promise. Jesus is speaking directly to that world right here in this passage today. So it's, it's very fitting for us. And so here's what I think. I think that, that he is going to teach us some principles about how we use our words that I think are going to be very challenging for us. But in the end, let's see if we can renew our hope and the one, truly the only one that can give us what we need. So let's dig in together to these, to these uh, scriptures and to this passage. And I'll just tell you first and foremost, what was Jesus' teaching on vows? That's where I think we need to go first because that's where Jesus goes first. His teaching on vows aren't that they're terrible. He instead says they're not bad, but not vowing is better. And here's why I think uh, that's important for us. Because the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, allowed for vows. Now, we don't know that, and so we have to go back into the Old Testament and help us understand, like, what are the things that the Old Testament allowed for when it came to vows? So let me put up some law for us, uh, which I know we're all excited about with Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's going to be exciting. Man, like richness to our soul. Here we go. Leviticus 19.2 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. And that's exactly probably the quote that Jesus is pulling from in Matthew 5 because he says, don't pull, pull there, I'm just going to read it. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. It's exactly out of Leviticus. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your Lord, I, of your God, I am the Lord. That's, an, that's a fascinating piece of law that we need to be reminded of and I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Deuteronomy 23. Verses 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord, you see how vows are allowable in the Old Testament? It's not that they're bad, they're just not the best. So, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed through your lips. For you have voluntarily, no one told you to do this, you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Even in the Old Testament law, there is a warning for God's people to not use their words carelessly. Particularly with vows and oaths and swearing, right? So, but not only was it allowed in the Old Testament law, but God also swore. Did you know that God made oaths? That God made what we know as covenants. And he said things like this in Genesis 22. Who did he swear by, though? <clears throat> he swore by himself, by himself. He says this in Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn. Why is he doing that? Why is he swearing by himself? Because there is no greater authority than God himself. And so he says, by myself. I'm not appealing to anyone else. I'm going to appeal to myself and to my good character. And then he says these things in Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this to, uh, to Abraham and Isaac. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. I have sworn by myself. So it's not a sin to make a vow or to swear. Otherwise, God would be sinning here. That's not the issue. But I want you to hear, I want you to see this, that vowing, swearing, making an oath, or saying, I promise, carries with it some very significant consequences. So do you guys remember the story of Jephthah in uh, Judges 11? A very sad story. Of course, we all, you probably named your, your kid Jephthah. Anybody Jephthah in here? No? no? Middle name? Second middle name? No? Okay, no one. Jephthah was a judge in Israel who made a vow to the Lord. And what did he make his vow to the Lord? If you give the Amorites into my hand that whatever comes out of my house upon returning, I will offer as a burnt offering. I don't know who he was expecting to come out of his house. It seems like a silly vow to me, but I kind of understanding his background, I kind of hear it and I kind of see it. But he, he says, anybody that comes out of my house, I will offer to you, Lord, as a burnt offering. He goes to war with the Amorites. He comes home to celebrate. And who comes out of his house first? His only child, a daughter. And what does he do? Does he say, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. I didn't know what I was saying. This is really inconvenient now. No, he trusts in the sovereignty of God. Grieves. Grieves. He says, oh, you have made me so low, daughter. She came out with tambourine, celebrating her dad's victory in war. And he gives her two months to grieve her life. And she says to him, do with me what you said to the Lord. And so he offers her as a burnt offering in Judges 11. And it said that it, great weeping went out through all of Israel for days every year to celebrate this young girl that we don't know her name. Like that's how serious vows were in the Old Testament. That even if it meant your daughter, there was no changing your mind. There was no going back on your word. Why? Why would he do that? Because of a Leviticus 19, that you profane the name of the Lord if we break those promises. That's profanity against the Lord. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain with our words, as if to say certain words. That's not exactly what God is getting at here. He's saying, if you live in a way that does not match up with your confession to God, you profane the name of the Lord. That's convicting for us. That's challenging for us. You know, this is what the Pharisees would kind of get after. And they didn't even have the righteousness of a man named Jephthah. Instead, what the Pharisees would do is that would, they would kind of play with words. And so this is the righteousness that, that, that he's pulling from, as if there's an Old Testament standard there to say, man, vows are serious before God, but you guys, you Pharisees, can't even do that. Instead, this is what they were known for doing. The rabbis in Jesus' day would say on an oath that is not binding. They would say an oath is not binding if you swear by Jerusalem. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, it is binding. And so they would say things like, well, I swear by Jerusalem that this, this, and this. Knowing that like this is like the hand crossed, like the fingers crossed behind your back. It's like, well, I mean, I swear by Jerusalem that this, this, and this. And they would go, oh, well, you, you said by Jerusalem, not toward Jerusalem. Oh, did I say by Jerusalem? Oh, my bad, my bad. Um, and so there was these caveats that they were using. They would say, if you swear by the temple, it is not binding. But if you swear by the temple's gold, then it is binding. If you swear by, um, by the altar, it is not binding. But if you swear by the gift of the altar, it is. So do you see the games that they're playing with words? Do you see the carelessness, um, the deceitfulness that they're using? This is, again, kind of fingers crossed behind my back. It is a false righteousness because it is full 
of caveats. So here I am. I'm coming at you like Jesus is coming at us, right? Do you dismiss your disobedience to God because of a caveat? Because of some, some rational thinking that we somehow, and I, we, we all do this, right? I think we all kind of get to this place where we dismiss our obedience to the Lord, disobedience to the Lord by some caveat. Like, oh, well, that's really inconvenient now, Lord. I know I asked you to do this, but now that it's here, I'm a little busy. This is what we do. Is it not? We chuckle a little bit because I was like, absolutely we do that. We, we, fing, we, we cross our fingers behind our back and we somehow think that these are playground games that we do. So I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, if we wanted somebody to believe us, we would say, I, was, I swear to God. Did you say that when you were a kid or did you say that now? Oh, I swear to God, blah, 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 blah. And then we would get like around that by saying, oh, I swear to God. I swear to God. That's, that's how it goes. And you would trick people by not saying, I swear to God. But I swear to Gog. And that's kind of what the Pharisees are up to. Did no one else do this? Am I the only terrible person on the planet? You're, you're, now, see, that's not cool, Wiley. You can't do that. You can't go, yes, that's true. You are the only terrible person. <laughs> this is what I used to do, I swear to Gog. And I would never say, I swear, like, I swear on my mother because I like my mom. I would never do that. But other people would do that. I'm like, I ain't doing that. I ain't playing that game because who knows what's going to happen. That ain't, that ain't cool. We would do these things, and I think this is what's in our minds even as adults. We say, Lord, will you do this for me? I'll do this if you do this. And then he does it, and you're like, I'm good. It happens. To, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of stories that I have of being in Starbucks and saying, Lord, give me an opportunity to minister to somebody. And then he gives me that opportunity, and I'm like, oh, that's going to be awkward. No thank you. And i got to wrestle, and i got to sit, and i go, Lord, okay, all right, okay. And it takes me way too long to be obedient. Why? Because we want caveats because of convenience. But what happens to those? What happens to those that will live beyond vows and promises that we're so willing to, to break um, at the lack of convenience to them, right? So, but knowing right and wrong really won't change our hearts. They haven't changed our hearts. And so here's the deal, right? Even though it's better to not make vows, we do, don't we? And so the question for us is like our practice is we do make vows, but why do we make those vows? Why is that our practice? Again, making a vow isn't the problem. It's playing with our words that's the problem. So this isn't a sermon about don't do this, do, do that, but why is it that we make vows? So I'll just say this. Some vows are honorable. Some vows are honorable. Two reasons or two ways that vows are honorable for the sake of others. When you make a vow as a doctor or an attorney, you are making, there is an oath, a Hippocratic oath for a medical doctor. Um, it, you're making an oath for the care of others, for the sake of someone else is an honorable, uh, uh, an honorable oath. When you take public office, are they not going to do this in January? They're going to put their left hand on a Bible and raise their right hand. And they're going to take an oath for the sake of the country, that they will serve the country. That's what happens in public office. A military oath, a Hippocratic oath, even oaths of marriage, these are all included in honorable for the sake of others types of vows. Or if it's not for the sake of others, it may be to gain the trust of others in a public space. So as, like for instance, when you go into a courtroom and they ask you to take an oath or a vow to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Why would you do that? If you're a Christian, you may struggle with that. Don't. 
It's a good thing to do because those people don't know your character. And there's a common understanding there that if you do this, that you are playing by the rules so that they can trust your word. If you deny yourself of that right, you deny yourself of the influence of being the salt and light in public places and in places like courtrooms. We must enter into these spaces. Christians must enter into these spaces um, by taking these oaths. We have to influence every circle and every sphere of life. But we also vow for less honorable reasons. And this is where it's going to get down a little bit closer to home because not everybody's here taking a Hippocratic oath. But sometimes we make oaths to other people and we say, I promise, or yes, I'll do this, to manipulate others. We say, I swear, or I promise, or I swear in my mother's grave, so that others will believe you. And this can be manipulative, that we use extra weight or pressure to force another to believe you. And you got to ask yourself, why am I putting a guarantee on my words? Why are my words not enough? So I'll give you an example in real life. If you say to your kids, and this would never happen, right? If you say to your kids, if you clean your room, I'll take you to Sonic. Oh, man, everybody, all the kids in life were like, ooh, yeah, Sonic. Bring me some of that action. If you clean your room, I'll go take you to Sonic. And your kid looks at you and goes, you promise? Promise you'll take me to Sonic? What just happened in that moment? What just happened in that moment? Your kid revealed to you they don't trust you. I'm for real. They just revealed to you they don't trust your word. You have to give them a guarantee. You have to give them something more than just your yes. Because in times past, when you said, if you clean your room, I'll take you to Sonic. When it came time to pay the piper, what were you doing? You were in the yard. You were napping. You were tired. You were gone. You were busy, all the reasons. I don't have $2, sorry. The, the app's not working. The drive through is full. It's too busy here. And all of a sudden, right, we make reasons. We, we create caveats to not follow through with our word. It's in that moment that I think God is inviting us to something different. That no matter the cost, will we follow through? And it's not just with your yes, it's also with your no. I don't know about you, but I struggle more with my no than with my yes. If I say yes to something, you can pretty much bet that I'm going to try and do that, right? You can't take it to the bank because I'm not Jesus, but I'm going to try and do that. If I say no, man, you got all kinds of negotiation room. And that's my practice. So my kids can come to me and they go, can, you, can we go to Sonic? And I'll go, no, you, what, we don't need that. What are you doing? And then they'll ask me again, I'll go, no, dude, I already told you. And they'll ask me again, no. And they'll ask me again, I'll go, dude, just for you to quit asking me, let's go to Sonic. <laughs> what did I just teach them? You can't trust my word. So you just keep badgering dad until he caves. We want to know why our kids keep going, mom, 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 mommy, mom, mom, mommy, mommy. Because we cave and our no isn't our no. We eventually just give in. So you kids in the house, this isn't room for you to start manipulating us. No, we're standing firm after today. <laughs> when we make promises, we are training people not to trust our word. I want you to hear that. When you make a promise, it's not, you're not actually training them to believe you. You're training them to not take you at your word. That's an important distinction for us today. Now, that's number one, to manipulate. The other one is because we are afraid to disappoint other people. 
we are afraid to disappoint other people. And so we commit ourselves to things. We say yes to things or no to things so that we don't disappoint another person. So we might say, yeah, I'll be there. And then when push comes to shove and you don't really feel like going, you go, oh, I, got, I got caught at work. I got stuck in traffic. Oh, there was that train in Richmond. See, I don't know if you knew there's a train. That's why they built the bridge, so you can't use that excuse anymore. Or I got busy. I mean, how busy can we be, y'all? Untrustworthy people tell you that they will do something only to get too busy to follow through. Do people get stuck in traffic? Yes. Do other things come up? Of course. That's not the issue. As long as you communicate, right, issues in our hearts. And here's what Jesus is inviting us into. Followers of Jesus who flourish in God's kingdom have the fortitude to disappoint people on the front end and say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Instead of saying, yes, I'm absolutely going to be there, and then you disappoint them on the back end by not showing up, not following through, not doing what you said you were going to do. This is a distinction of Christians, y'all. What we do with our mouth matters greatly. So I'll give you an example of how we don't want to disappoint others. Not that this would happen in your world. But let's say your boss comes to you on a Monday and says, hey, I know you're working on three projects, uh, but I need you to get me this project by Friday. And you think to yourself, there is no way I will be able to get that project done by Friday. My kids have got games all week long. I can't stay late. And I've got these other three projects that I'm juggling right now. What are you going to do as a worker in Corona America? This is a real life situation almost every week right now. What will you do? You have three choices, at least. Number one, you break your commitments at home. Let me just, not in the notes. Work will always want more from you. Always, 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 always. They will never get enough of your time, of your energy, of your affection, of your soul, of your family. They will always want more. Back into the pocket here. Are we going to break our commitment at home? That's one way you could do it. All right, sorry, babe, can't do it. Can't make it to this, can't make it to that. I got to stay late for all week long and I can't do it. This is probably the most common thing that I hear on a regular basis. And I haven't been in the, in the, in the corporate world. I almost said working world. That would be incorrect. I haven't been in the corporate world for a long time. But nonetheless, that was kind of where I would land. That's number one. Number two, you agree to the deadline. You try your best, but you fail to make the deadline and you disappoint your boss because it's inevitable can't do it. You knew it when you said it, and you said yes to it. You knew you weren't going to be able to do it, but you just tried your best, and it didn't happen. That's option two. Option three for the Christian. May I invite you into this? Hey, boss, man, thank you for trusting me with this project. I want to do what you're expecting me to do, but you've given me three projects already, so which one of those three would you like me to deprioritize so that I could prioritize this one in time? Disappoint them on the front end? And enjoy the fruits of that labor later. But instead, what we usually do is we just go, oh, man, I can't say no to that. i got to just press in. i got to cut all this. But what if we went and we just said no? And we didn't disappoint from the get-go. See, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. To not use our words carefully. I mean, to not use our words carelessly. That would be the opposite. Carelessly, right? There are our vows that are honorable for the sake of others, to gain the trust of others. But there's also these reasons that we need to really take to heart. Are we manipulating someone else when we say, yeah, I promise? Are we not wanting to disappoint someone else when we say, absolutely, I'll be there? And then you have no intention of actually being there. Or you get too tired at the last minute. 
There is an invitation here to take these matters seriously. And it's what Jesus says here in verse 37. Because here's his major point. More than words is evil. And I'm not talking about the 90s song by Extreme. Because that's a really good song. I'm going to tell you right now, I can play two songs on the guitar and that's one of them. And I can only play the intro, so don't tell me about the rest of it. But, right, more than words is evil. And so here's what he says in verse 37, right? I'm just going to read verse 34 through 37 so that we have an understanding of where he's going. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for, the city, for it is the city of the great king. And then in 36, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Ladies in the house, you said... Amen to that. Did, did we offend all the people by saying amen to that? Okay, all right, okay. Um, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or the evil one. That would be Satan, demons. This is a big deal to Jesus. When he starts to invite us into this kind of, uh, of, of striking uh, reality. He's saying, look, this comes from Satan himself if we use more than words. If we use just a, more than a yes or a no. Will we take it that seriously? Or will we brush this off and go, oh, he doesn't really mean that. I can assure you he does. I can assure you he does. And I'll help us understand what is going on here. Why is this so, such a big deal for Jesus? Four reasons that I'll put you before you and then we're going to be done, hopefully. Number one. First reason is this, Satan is a liar. Y'all know that, right? And he's, he doesn't just, just come out and lie to you. He does things like what he did to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Did he really say that? I mean, surely he didn't mean that. Even if he did say it, did he really mean that? No, he, that's what he does. That's his common practice, so much so that Jesus says this in John 8 about the Pharisees. You want to know why the Pharisees killed him? It's because he said stuff like this to them. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Look at the enemy. Look at why this is such a big deal to Jesus. Because when we shade the truth, when we use caveats, when we don't follow through, when we do anything other than yes or no, we don't stand in the truth either because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You want to know why God stands against lying so much or even just not fulfilling our word? Because it represents the darkness of Satan's kingdom and not the light and the, and the salt of God's kingdom. That's a big statement for us. First, Satan's a liar. Second, we don't have any authority. Why don't we take vows? Because he says, well, I mean, you can't swear by heaven because that's where God lives. You can't swear by earth because that's where he puts up his feet at night. You can't even swear by Jerusalem because that's Jesus' city. A.K.A., you can't even swear by your own head. You don't even own that. It's all Jesus's. It's all God's. And he's saying, it's all mine. You can't have any of it, and you certainly can't swear by any of it. Have no authority here. It is all God's. It's all his. Third, every word matters when you are God's representative on the earth. The simplest of words, check this out. 
Why is it that he's saying don't even worry about, or, or it's, it's better to not make any vow at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why is he making that distinction? Because he's saying that little, the smallest of words of no or yes is as binding as a vow. Is as, is as weighty as a promise. Now I want you to see this. So far throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he has said easy stuff doesn't matter. Don't murder? Cool. Great. Everybody can check that on the list, off the list. Don't be angry? Everybody's guilty. Don't commit adultery? All right. Some of us can check that off the list. Don't lust? Everybody's guilty. The no certificates of divorce thing, that's kind of a situational thing. Now we get into words, and he says, hey, don't, just don't even take an oath. And we all go, okay, we won't take oaths. And we get legalistic about not taking oaths. But if he says every word is now as binding as an oath, now what are we? All guilty again. God is weaning us off of external measures of obedience to say it's in your heart. That's what he's here to capture. That's what he's here to bring under his kingship, under his reign. It's no wonder then that he says in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37, just hang with me here, either make the tree good and its, its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Again, he says to the, uh, to the Pharisees in verse 34, is this behind me? Yes, perfect. Yeah, verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? See what's coming out? It's what's coming out through our mouths and, 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 and off of our tongues and into words that represents the kind of tree that we are. When you speak, you're evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So is, is the abundance of your heart to not disappoint people? If the abundance of your heart is to people please, if the abundance of your heart to manipulate, or is the abundance of your heart to just be like, you know what, my acceptance, my approval, my character, my uh, standing in this world isn't based on all this horizontal stuff. It's based on King Jesus' acceptance of me as his blood-bought son or daughter of the king. That's, the, that's the, the abundance of our heart coming out. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, son, uh, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And look at what he says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's by our words, by how we use our words, that we will show who we belong to. The father of lies and condemnation, the father of justification, of perfection, of righteousness. It's through our words that we show these things to the culture around us. And fourthly and finally, can you imagine the culture that would be based on manipulation, on not following through with promises? Could you just bend your imagination towards this type of culture where no one can trust the truth? where no one can, re can trust reports of the truth? Could you imagine a world, I mean, so far out there, where, where things are just twisted and manipulated to where you have no idea what's actually right and wrong anymore? Friends, we are falling right into the trap of our enemy. But will we be guided, not by YouTube conspiracy theories or news or fake news, but will we be guided by the truth of the scriptures, by the God of truth, not by the father of lies, but by the God of truth, 
who came to be the truth on our behalf and then put the spirit of truth inside of us. See, that's what's happening right here when he's talking about vows and oaths and promises and swearing. He's saying, live according to the character that God has made you in this crazy world, and people will start to see that you do belong to someone else. You don't belong to this kingdom. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. See, that's the idea here that God's getting at again and again. Not just that we would not do certain things, but that we would be a certain kind of person. The person that is blood-bought. The person that does take God at his word. You see, we want to know why this is so hard, so, so close to the heart of Jesus? Because he never lies. He never lies. He never shades the truth to you. He never looks at you and says, you know what, this is going to hurt you, so I'm going to tell you something different. He also doesn't pull back and go, you know, you need to hear this, but I don't think you can handle it right now, so I'm just going to keep this for myself. He doesn't do that either. He comes at us with truth in love, truth and grace, and grace upon grace to be able to form us into the kind of people that he saw when he died for us. That's what he came for. He didn't come just to make us nice or just to help us fit in. He came us to, for us to stick out in the best possible way because God cannot tell a lie, and the scriptures say, like people do. He can't. So will we be a people truth to the bank? Well, how many times does he have to say it? Just one time. You know why? Because his yes is yes and his no is no. And when he stands against something, it's a no. When he stands for something, it's a yes. 100% of the time. He is trustworthy and true. Is he good? He says so. Do we believe it? Is he trustworthy? He says he is. Do we believe it? Does he sit enthroned over all rulers and powers and authorities, including government elections? He says he does. Do we believe that? Is he near the brokenhearted? If you're brokenhearted, is he near you today? He says so. Will he make all things new one day? He says he will. Has he paid for all your sins, even the ones you don't want to talk about? especially those, he says he has. Has he risen from the dead? Is he a risen Savior? Is he ascended at the right hand of the Father? Or has he just forgotten about us, not wondering what's going on in and out of our lives? Well, he says he's ascended. He says he's resurrected. Has the same spirit of resurrection now been put inside of you? That's what he says. Will we believe and take God at his word, or will we kind of de-escalate where his word is and equate it to everything else. What kind of people will we be when he says something like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because anything above that, anything more than those words, is evil. Evil. And so God is inviting us into a kingdom that is good. And that's the place where we flourish. That's the place in the Sermon on the Mount, again, where our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Because that's the invitation for us. 
That, so, so how will we respond in all of this, right? By trusting in the one who is always trustworthy to make good on his word to forgive us. He will always make good and has made good on his word to cleanse us. He will make good on his word to indwell his people, to live amongst us and in us. He will make us new one day. And praise be to God for his glorious ga- grace, which he richly poured out on his people through his son Jesus, the Christ, the one from Nazareth who came to set all these things straight, both once in, in 33 or whenever that was, and again he will do in the future. He will make this place new, exactly the way that he wanted it. Will we look forward to that, or will we get bogged down into all the crazy that God is allowing in these days? God's inviting us to trust. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and in a minute, we're going to get up, and we're going to get our kids and come back in for communion. But before that, we want to declare that truly we love you. Why do we love you? Because you say you loved us first. And you, you look past all the times where we've said yes and meant no. You've looked past all the times where we've said no and really meant yes. Lord, you came to deliver us from the kind of law where we prop ourselves up and saying, I'm righteous before God because I always do what I say. You're the only one that's ever done that. If we're, if we're not careful, the legalists in the room will go, oh yeah, I do this all the time. But we don't. But we don't. You do. You're the only one 100% of the time who has done exactly what he said he was going to do. You are trustworthy and true. We, on the other hand, break promises at the drop of a hat. Our favorite Netflix show just got released. Oh, man, can't make that again. Our boss asks us to do X, Y, or Z. Well, we're breaking those promises. I said I was going to go do that with those people. Well, something else came up. We find ways to be fickle, but God, you are calling us to live in a different light. To be who you say we are. New creations. And so, Lord... Remind us of those things. Remind us now as we respond in song and in sacrament of communion as we go get our kids. Let that not even just break what you're trying to remind us of. That you're good. You're good. And and ultimately that just means that we're not. You're the only one that's good enough to meet the righteous standards of the law. We can't do it. And so Lord, we... We respond in in belief. We respond in trust that you're good. We repent of trying to create our own goodness through good behavior or pretending that we're not that bad. And we, Lord, instead believe in the good news of the kingdom that you, the king, has left heaven, come to earth to die for rebels and to bring them into uh, your table where we will feast. Lord, renew us, remake us into the image of your Son as we look to your goodness in the days ahead. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.